Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, writer and former CIA officer Cindy Otis on spotting fake news. What are the lenses that you put on when you start looking at information? How is that coloring what you end up reading, what you end up trusting, and what you end up thinking is true, false, or opinion? you know, a briefer for the National Security Council for a while. I would go into rooms of primarily military men. I was often the only woman in the room. And I was also the only person with a physical disability in most rooms. Again, if we're looking for the best and the brightest, and those are often people with disabilities, we should be working as hard as we possibly can to make our agencies as inclusive as possible. Cindy, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for having me. You bet. I am excited because I understand that next year you will have your first work of book length work of fiction coming out. Is that right? That's right. Um, It is my uh, first novel to be published. It's not my first novel that I've written, um, but it's called At the Speed of Lies and uh, it comes out next summer. At the Speed of Lies. That Sounds like it could also be nonfiction. So what what is the outline of the story and why did you choose to do it as a novel? Um, so you're absolutely right. It could be a work of nonfiction. It is uh, very heavily inspired by real world events. It's essentially about um, a small town in upstate New York Um in which uh, two children go missing from a nearby city and it sort of turns the town uh, on its head. And um, the the protagonist, uh, an Instagrammer named Quinn, is sort of caught in the middle of all of it and trying to figure out what's actually happening and um, is confronted by uh, a number of um, different events that happen that make her sort of question everything. Wow. Now, this book is targeted at the young adult market, mm-hmm. and your your previous book, which is out in a new paperback edition as we speak, uh, True or False, was also targeted for young adults, although as we'll talk about, I think it, it very well could be marketed towards um, the general market easily as efficiently. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about that a bit, because... There are some differences writing for the YA market, and that's a conscious choice you made quite a bit ago to focus on that with some of your article length writing as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should begin even earlier than that. You were an analyst and manager at the CIA, and you left. We'll, we'll come back to the CIA experiences later on. But when you left, did you know that you wanted to write books and more specifically that you wanted to communicate to the YA audience? Yeah. So um, I've always been one of those people that had a number of different careers in mind um, my entire life. Um, I knew basically, I would say from second grade that I wanted to write. Um, I was that kid who was always, you know, writing little picture books and Um, writing little short stories and sharing them in class and things like that. I think the very first, you know, sort of full story I ever wrote was called The Case of the Missing School. And spoiler alert, in that story, the school disappears. Um, (laughs) That sounds like like a R.L. Stein Goosebumps book. Was he plagiarizing from you? 
<laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to um, you some back royalties jump to conclusions, but <laughs> no, I was a big R.L. Stein fan uh, as a kid, actually. But um, so I, so I always knew that I wanted to, um, to pursue creative writing at some point. Um, for reasons maybe we'll talk about later, I decided to go the sort of political science and intel route. Um, but even when I was at the agency, I was um, spending my free time seriously writing with the eye towards publishing someday. Um, so I started my first uh, full-length book in about 2011, um, and it was a novel, uh, which is currently collecting dust on some shelf somewhere, uh, never was published. But um, but I always I have always wanted to be a writer um, in addition to the other things that I've done with my life. And young adult, the choice for young adult was definitely very intentional. Um, I think, you know, why literature is actually one of the the places where I think some of the most creative storytelling is is happening. Um, YA is taking on some of the the topic toughest topics in society, everything from um, police violence issues to um, you know publishing about underrepresented communities. Um, I think some even in, in story format, there are some incredible novel and verses that have come out novel and verse that have come out under YA. And so it's a place where you can really, I think, stretch as a writer um, and try things that are that are kind of different. With my first book, True or False, um, being nonfiction, it takes on a really tough topic. And that is, you know, disinformation, misinformation, and digital media literacy skills that that folks can learn to then employ in their own lives. And I, I wrote that for YA. I would say probably the biggest readership is actually um, adults. Um, but that, again, was a very intentional choice. And I, I sort of kind of thought that was going to be the case. But I thought YA is a, is a, affords you the ability as a writer to break down really complex topics into uh, language that that readers of all ages will be able to understand. And I felt like taking on a topic as difficult as this, being able to write it in a sort of YA format was actually going to be really great for adults as well, because adults, um, you know, some of the older generations, they didn't grow up online, right? They didn't grow up with the internet and social media um, affecting their daily lives. And so what a great way to teach a complex topic by making it in an accessible format. You know, this may not, be the first time that you've been compared to J.K. Rowling, but uh, <laughs> it is. I'm going to go there. I'm going right. to go there because Harry Potter, uh, the Harry Potter book series, was for children explicitly, but it dealt with interesting enough characters and big enough themes that a lot of adults also enjoyed reading them. Often the excuse was, "I'm." buying them to read them to my child or to read along with my child to make sure that some of the dark themes that we can talk about it. But really, that was just an excuse to read a a good book and a well-crafted series. And I kind of feel like that could be the case with this book that, you know, True or False, which is subtitled A CIA Analyst's Guide to Spotting Fake News. I read it and I I did not read it to, to my children, but I feel like somebody could see this and say, you know, that's really interesting. It's not like the other misinformation, disinformation analyses out there, which tend to be more scholarly, sometimes more academic. Um, 
I kind of want to read that. So let me use the excuse of reading it to my kid. And I'm, <laughs> I'm really buying it for them from the young adult section. Um, but you know, if, if, if I can read it too, that's a good thing. Now, I'm not sure your sales have yet matched J.K. Rowling's, but you're, <laughs> you're on your way there if that dynamic works. Yeah, not, not quite yet. Not quite yet. Um, yeah, I, I have had, I've heard stories from folks who said, you know, I got this for my kid and then it was, you know, they, they tore through it. Um, and I ended up picking it up as a result, wondering, you know, what was so compelling about it that they, that this kid of mine who otherwise doesn't much like to read, you know, Mm -hmm. raced through it and found myself racing through it as well. So, um, that's been really gratifying to hear. What struck me when I was reading through the book uh, again recently with that YA frame in mind is that you don't do what I fear a lot of writers in the YA field do, perhaps subconsciously. You don't dumb it down, right? You don't you don't pull punches. You don't use simple vocabulary. It's it's an adult read, and and yet it's accessible to teens who are online and potentially getting into trouble. One part of doing that is the substance itself. I love the fact that you. You start the book by telling what is, I think, one of the best sections in print of the history of, of fake news, pointing out that information that is not true or is embellished or is exaggerated has been around for a long, long time, thousands of years. And I'm wondering if you can talk through a couple of those cases from history and why you chose to include them to start your analysis here. Yeah, well, part of it goes back to why I wrote the book in the first place. Um, You know, when I left the CIA, it was the middle of 2017. And if you can remember back that far, um, at this point, it seems like it's been 20 years. It hasn't been. Uh, But at that point, um, the U.S. government had just released a declassified um, assessment on the extent of Russian interference in our election in 2016. And there was a flurry of course, um, and a lot of public discourse after that about um, about what this meant, right? What this meant for a democracy, what this meant for um, online spaces, what we could trust, what were good sources, um, what are what foreign adversaries were trying to do in the United States, all of that. And <clears throat> a lot of it was discussed as this is a brand new thing that's never happened before. Um, and of course, you know, anyone who's who's worked in this space, certainly, but also in national security um, communities, we know that that's not true. And I felt like that was a really important thing to get across to the public, because mm-hmm. understanding um, how these things happened before, why people uh, spread false information, who has done the spreading throughout history, what have the motivations been, that sort of thing was really, really important for folks to put in, you know, to be able to put in now the contemporary examples that we have into context and also help us understand the pathway forward on all of this, right? Because we've done it before. The the media is different, right? We're talking social media Mm -hmm. or even the printing press compared to, Mm -hmm. you know, a papyrus or a carving on a wall. But, But the principles really are the same, aren't they? Right. And, and, and that's what I was hoping the history section would show, really. And so the history piece of the book is a number of different case studies, everything from, you know, Ramses II in ancient Egypt to um, pre-revolution, uh, French Revolution with Marie Antoinette, uh, Jack the Ripper, 
founding, uh, the founders of America, um, uh, big tobacco um, in the 50s and onward. Uh, and um, case studies like that, that, that people would be relatively familiar with, we might have heard of, you know, in maybe some course or uh, at some point in our lives. And being able to use then those those examples to show this is how our understanding, even today, is affected by the false information that was circulating at the time and afterwards. And so, um, you know, it was really an attempt to um, to to put all of that into context, even though the technology is different. Yeah, I, I learned some things about the deep history here. For example, in your chapter on Jack the Ripper. You noted that when the the first letter from the killer was delivered to the Central News Agency in London, um, you know, it was printed and got a lot of attention. It was the sensation of the day. And even after the killing stopped, reporters continued connecting murders to Jack the Ripper. And for about a decade after, London police and various media received more than a thousand letters claiming to be from Jack the Ripper. I think I think I knew that. I don't think that was the surprise. But what came after was, which is that not only most of the letters w- were fakes, but that some of the letters had actually been written by a journalist from the very central news agency that received the first legitimate letter. That is, mm-hmm. the people printing these letters were involved in the process to disseminate fake news even in that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have to think about the the time period in which this was taking place. This was, you know, London in 1888. Um, this was a part of London that uh, Whitechapel that housed um, those from lower socioeconomic classes. It was a, a, a major hub for um, immigrants and individuals who worked in the more industrial um, side of the economy. And there was a lot of um, disparity between the lower class and the higher echelons of London society and a lot of fear from London society over, um, you know, immigrants coming into the city. And so um, as these murders started, and these murders were horrific, by the way, I mean, incredibly grisly, gruesome, awful things um, that were done to at least five women. Um, And all of these women came from very similar backgrounds, had fallen on hard times and uh, were in extreme forms of poverty. And um, and this murderer, you know, essentially was hunting them. And so it made for extremely, you know, click, what we would call sort of clickbait now, um, clickbaity headlines. The entire city and even the world was really gripped by these murders. Attention was, was uh, you know, on this this particular event. And so it made for some great content for, for newspaper sellers and newspaper writers. Um, and so when that letter first appeared in blood red ink, uh, signed by Jack the Ripper, um, you know, it, it really poured gasoline on this, the sensationalism of, of the event. And, you know, because of, uh, you know, sentiments that were uh, anti-poor, anti-immigrant and all of that, it fueled suspicion. Um, rumors were rampant about who the killer could be. A lot of uh, a lot of the rumors were about, you know, immigrants, um, people from underrepresented communities, and uh, you know, essentially the newspapers took advantage of that situation to really just print um, any rumor that they heard about, you know, who this killer could be, uh, and it went on and on, as you said. It seems to be a theme in all 
or at least most of the historical cases you look at, that we have to remember, whether you call it clickbait or sensationalism, that it costs money to disseminate information, whether it's a newspaper, whether it's a magazine, whether it's uh, you know paying someone to go out and give speeches, or whether it's running a website. It costs money, and therefore there is a financial incentive, some, a perverse one. Sometimes it's blatant and sometimes it is subconscious, but there is this incentive to, to drive up, you know, clicks, to drive up subscriptions, to drive up purchases of the newspaper, which tends to exacerbate all of these dynamics you talk about, uh, which are the, the ill motivations people might have are then magnified by this, in a sense, profit motive. You point out there are journalistic standards and, and they developed for particular reasons, but is it just inherent in the way that we disseminate news that there's going to be this inexorable pull towards sensationalism and even fake news? I mean, to a degree, yes. I think the financial piece of this is just enormous and really, really important to understand um, and why so many of my case studies do, do focus on that. One of the ones I talk about is the role of big tobacco in trying to silence, you know, the scientific findings throughout the, the 1900s that, you know, started with the first report that, um, that smoking caused lung cancer and went on from there um, as a way of protecting their bottom line. Um, another uh, one that I talk about is the sheer amount of money that was made uh, from creating fake news and publishing fake news on websites by various actors surrounding the 2016 election. Um, one of my uh, favorite examples, um, and I always cringe a little bit when I call purveyors of, of disinformation uh, a favorite. Um, I know how creepy that sounds. Um, but one of my favorite examples is... Um, you know, some, some teenagers in uh, a very small um, town in Macedonia that were running large networks of um, really clickbait websites, things like, you know, ilovepets.com and ilovemusclecars.com and things like that, and then realized that they could actually make quite a lot more money if instead they turned those websites into um, hyper-partisan, sensational, and even fake political content around the U.S. election in 2016. And you went from these teenagers really having very limited job prospects where they grew up in Macedonia, where the average income rate at the time was about $250 to $300 a month, being able to create these networks of, of websites, fill them with pay-per-click ads, and rake in thousands of dollars from these websites. Um, some of the uh, reporters from places like BuzzFeed News and, and others who actually went and investigated some of these individuals and talked to some of them, you know, these were teenagers, mostly teen boys who ended up being able to buy things like fancy cars and get, you know, pretty girlfriends and um, start their own businesses and things like that based off of the money that they made from, um, from targeting the election. And when they, you know, some of them were asked by these reporters, you know, do you have any remorse? Are you concerned that you have, you know, potentially degraded the extent to which Americans trust their democracy? The answer was mostly no, they didn't care. It was, you know, it wasn't their country. It wasn't their problem. There was an opportunity for them. And so, um, you know, that's the reality when there's money to be made or there's money to protect in the case of, you know, big tobacco trying to 
um, silence uh, scientific findings, um, that will always be a massive incentive. And it's almost uh, a wonderment on their part that the question would even be asked. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what, what do you mean? You know, the consequences of what we're doing, you know, people, people want to read this stuff, people are clicking on it. So what, what's the issue from our end? We're just providing people with what they want at some level. That's so disturbing, but you can understand the core truth behind it from their perspective. Right. And I mean, of course, there's also a, a segment of these individuals, too, who uh, don't just financially profit from it, but they're also ideologically aligned with the messages that they're putting out. Right. So, you know, you have you have people who genuinely believe in, in um, promoting the kinds of causes that they're promoting. And if they have to use false information to do it, you know, they think it's for the right cause and they happen to be making money from it. And that's another um, case that I talk about in the book is um, of a, of a guy who had just graduated from college was, you know, burdened by a lot of college debt, decided to create some um, fake news websites um, through which he was able to promote his uh, candidates of choice, which included um, Donald Trump uh, prior to the 2016 election. And he was really able to sort of kill two birds with one stone. He was able to promote his, his candidate and his party. Um, He wrote, completely made up stories that he, you know, complete works of fiction. It wasn't one of those instances of taking something that was true and just manipulating it. They were wholesale complete works of fiction um, and was able to, you know, pay off student loans while promoting his ideology. Not a bad gig if you can get it. Um, (laughs) It just has a pretty high societal cost because, you know, the external costs here are not nothing. One thing I like about your historical cases, Cindy, is each time you tell a story, you you bring it to a higher theme and you use it to illustrate a principle of, of these dynamics behind fake news. And I'll use one example here along those lines. You tell the story of Thomas Jefferson in particular, although Alexander Hamilton did some of his own, but Thomas Jefferson was notorious. And I remember talking to historian Lindsay Travinsky on Chatter uh, quite a while ago about some of these dynamics. And the more we learn about Jefferson, the less wonderful he seems. But that Thomas Jefferson was, in a sense, helping to have published and prompting to have published criticisms of the very government in which he served using using fake news. And you briefly tell some of that story and how how it happened. But you take it to the higher point, which is that the fake news battles in the late 1800s and um, the late 1700s and early 1800s show us the importance of knowing not just what motivation the author of a story may have for telling it, but also who else might be behind the story, the person, the government, the partisan organization. And of course, now we would say, you know, foreign actors trying to sow discord. Uh how did you choose your case studies here? Because for each of these points, like, you know, find out who's writing this and what bias they might have, or find out who's funding the organization. Um, there are plenty of stories you could pull from in history, and you had uh, no shortage of potential examples. How did you choose the ones you settled on? Yeah, I um, one, I actually started working on the book by... Um, outlining the themes that I wanted to be sure to include 
and outlining especially the digital media literacy tips that I wanted to include in the second half of the book. Um, and then I, I chose case studies that I thought would best, you know, exemplify those things. Um, where, where were the stories where I could pull out these, these threads and then align them with those tips later on in the book? That was part of it. The other piece of it too was I wanted to make sure that I was choosing case studies that, that folks would be at least somewhat familiar with. Um, and in the United States, there's <laughs> there's no better sort of case study that that I think most people are probably familiar with than than the founders of America, um, even if even if it was just through you know having seen Hamilton. Um, <laughs> but but I wanted to make sure that I was choosing case studies that were that were accessible, but also would really help sort of drive that that point home of what you think you know about this this piece of history. Let's actually talk about the ways in which false information influenced even your perceptions too today. And some of the stories I think definitely fit that. At least at least everyone knows the names, right? Mm-hmm. I could imagine a, a teenager picking up this book and she has heard of Marie Antoinette, which is mm-hmm. a character in one of your historical case studies, or Jack the Ripper. Uh, maybe not Ramses the second, but that's fun anyway. Edgar Allan Poe is one. Edgar Allan Poe is one that I'm betting has pretty high name recognition by the time someone is in high school. And most people have read at least The Pit in the Pendulum or The Fall of the House of Usher, something from Edgar mm-hmm. Allan Poe. But you you tell a story about him that's quite different. Tell us what Edgar Allan Poe did and why he hits one of those themes for you. Yeah. Um you know, I was trying to to find case studies that would help um, illustrate the ways and the different ways in which newspapers were used um, throughout history um, and the way that sort of journalistic standards evolved over time. Um, and so I talked about um, Edgar Allan Poe, sort of his background and how he ended up writing a story for The Sun in 1844, in which he said a European balloonist um, had crossed the Atlantic Ocean in about 75 hours in a something that resembled a hot air balloon. And um, it was presented, this this fictional story is true, and that was very in keeping with the times. Newspapers at the time were a mix of different kinds of writing. It was, you know, yes, reporting, and it was ads and all of that. But it was also fictional stories. It was, you know, creative writing. It was... Um, it was more fanciful kinds of things. And at the time, you know, obviously at the time, uh, planes did not exist, right? Uh, And so the idea of a hot air balloon that could travel that kind of distance in such a short amount of time was really quite mind blowing. Um, And I think, you know, a, a theme throughout the book that I tried to focus on was the impact of false information, the impact of fooling people. Um, and in instances uh, like the Edgar Allan Poe one, the impact was sort of destroying the credibility of newspapers and newspaper reporting because people felt like they were being tricked uh, in a lot of these historical instances that I talked about. They didn't find them necessarily fun in games. They actually found them um, qu- quite annoying, really. Like they, they were tired of being tricked. And so a lot of these stories... Um, or these instances throughout history actually led to the creation of standards-based news with things like fact checkers and editing teams, separation of opinions, you know, from actual reporting, that kind of thing. 
because um, it was instances like these that really ended ended up destroying you know the trust that citizens had for newspaper reporting. Right, and I got to say, there is that. I don't know what you would call it, that general cost of undermining credibility of any news sources, even ones that are well-sourced and and have Mm -hmm. ethical principles of fact-checking and things like that. But there are some specific costs too. For example, when you write about the Nazis in Germany, um, Mm -hmm. that that was not a philosophical cost to the fake news. That was a horrific human toll to the fake news that was a choice you had to make, right? You're talking about Edgar Allan Poe and stories of hot air balloons. You're talking about, you know, Thomas Jefferson making ridiculous claims uh, through his publications and even Ramses II as ancient history. But then you went to the Holocaust, right? Um, why did you feel you had to include that when up to that point you've, while not lighthearted, we're still talking about Jack the Ripper and horrific murders and the the Spanish-American war and yellow journalism. It's a real human cost, but but you really ramped it up when you start bringing in the Holocaust and fake news. Why did you include that? Uh, I mean, I didn't think I couldn't not. I mean, it's one of the, the most um, horrific events in history. It is, um, you know, like you said, other pieces of the book dealt with, you know, instances in which there was loss of life, um, you know, French Revolution, that sort of thing. This was certainly, um, you know, a, di- a different kind of example, but it is one of the most horrific and extremely important historical cases of how um, a government very successfully wielded false information to, um, to in an attempt to destroy whole pieces of society, whole communities of individuals. Um, and was successful for a very long time in doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, given that those, the narratives that they very successfully wielded are still present today, anti-Semitism continues, ableism continues, uh, anti-LGBTQ sentiment continues. And a lot of it is based on those conspiracies and false narratives that um, the the Nazi government you know, peddled, I think readers need to understand and recognize the signs and understand the historical context of where that comes from and ultimately where that leads. Do you think that as much as Nazi Germany is a part of not pop culture, but certainly pop consciousness, that somehow it's still an underreported and underappreciated story, right? Because we have so much history coming at us and we're focused so much rightfully on things like racial justice and other issues in our own lifetimes, that aspect of the fake news leading to some of the worst atrocities of the Nazi regime, is is that something that needs to be told even more? I mean, I think it does. We see that um, Holocaust denialism is on the rise. Um, We see... um, groups that subscribe to anti-Semitic conspiracies are increasingly finding their ideology mainstreamed um, in political parties around the world. I think there's also um, a lot that has not been um, fully understood by societies about just how widespread 
their, um, their attacks and oppression were. They targeted the press. They targeted um, LGBTQ individuals. They targeted disabled people and slaughtered them um, because of the communities and the identities that they, that they had. And so um, that often isn't understood um, by people who are not from those communities. And so I think it's incredibly important to continue um, talking about this as a historical example that's still very much um, feeding into things we see today. One of the biggest tensions in in talking about a tragedy of that magnitude is is you know balancing the attention and the horror about the the groups that were targeted, right? Mm-hmm. So you take care to point out that yes, of course, uh, it was targeting Jews within Germany and in the countries around Germany that were occupied. Uh, however. The program also was targeting the disabled. The program was also targeting uh, LG. I mean, it was it was targeting a number of people, uh, Roma mm-hmm. and others. Now, if you emphasize those groups too much, then there can be a backlash saying, why are you minimizing the horror against the largest targeted group? And are you contributing in a sense to, if not Holocaust denialism, are you in a sense minimizing the anti-Semitism of it? When as, as your intentions are simply to point out, well, the fake news contributed to a lot of targeted activity against a lot of different populations. How do you balance that? Because you're trying to tell a story. You're trying to be truthful and acknowledge what happened. You're not trying to change the historical balance of attention. You're just trying to highlight that it went across the board. How do you, mm-hmm. how do you think your way through that when you're writing a book that you know is not going to take 200 pages to try to explain all that nuance, but try to do that in a few paragraphs. Yeah. That, I mean, that was certainly a challenge um, throughout the book is, um, you know, you've got a limited number of space, uh, amount of space, and you're trying to cover just a massive amount of history. Uh, and so um, I wanted to be incredibly careful about how I told these historical case studies so as not to um, minimize um, what was occurring at the time, but was really focused on drawing out sort of key themes for people um, that would help uh, be able to lead to sort of discussion and analysis of what this means for for our understanding of, of fake news, false information, conspiracies, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, my approach with, with this particular chapter was simply just to um, outline the strategy and the targets so um, in an attempt to, you know, not, not at all minimize um, the, the largest community affected by the Holocaust, I really just focused on highlighting the, the multi-pronged deliberate strategy of targeting um, some of these other communities as well. Um, I felt it was important, you know, I'm a, I'm a disabled person, I'm a wheelchair user, and I talk about disability issues quite a lot. It's fundamental to who I am as a person. And so I felt that it was also important from to bring that perspective as well as the author of the book. You've just used the phrase disabled person. And I know there is a lot of discussion and a whole lot of energy around the, the terms to use for, for certain, however you tend to affiliate or identify yourself. The words matter, right? Mm-hmm. And in the book and in some of your writings, you will talk about the disabled, or you will talk about disabled persons or people who use wheelchairs. Uh, talk about 
talk about that struggle that not just obviously the the physical struggle although feel free to talk about that as well but the the struggle as a writer of how do i talk about my own experience without trying to diminish somebody else's way of describing themselves mhm yeah so actually um my novel uh, that we talked about earlier at the speed of lies the protagonist is a wheelchair user as well um and uh so it definitely came up as i was writing that as well um and uh you know the the conversation on terminology i think is really is really interesting i am a firm believer in people should use the language for themselves for which they feel most comfortable um it is a completely personal decision about whether you use person first language or disability first language mm-hmm. um and i will often use them for myself interchangeably i'm comfortable with wheelchair user i'm comfortable with person with a disability person who uses a wheelchair i'm comfortable with disabled person but that's a personal choice um i tend to lean more towards disabled person first language um that is uh the the belief in using disability first language that um it is society's inaccessibility that makes a person disabled and so it's a disabled person because you are disabled by society essentially in the lack of access inequality um as i get older i tend to lean more that way to be honest yeah. uh as a younger person i i felt more comfortable with person with a disability mm-hmm. it was something i felt like i wanted to emphasize the the fact that i am a person first right. um but that has shifted <laughs> as i've gotten older if i know what you prefer right mm-hmm. if if i know that you prefer a disabled person then then it's on me to use that uh, to the best of my ability both both memory um and intent come in if i don't know and i inadvertently cause offense what what do you recommend there because i think most people are well intentioned Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to think that at least, and most people who are perhaps meeting you for the first time at a book event or communicating with you online, um, unless they're deliberate trolls, I would say that, that most people are well-intentioned, but if they don't use a term that, that you prefer, or even if they use a term that they may think is acceptable from their limited experience, but actually is offensive to the vast majority of people um, with any condition they're trying to describe. Um, what did, what advice do you have there? Because that's a very sensitive topic for people who are trying to do the right thing. And I've not taken you to be one who is lashing out at people who who aren't using exactly the preferred phrase. I've just never seen that from you in public. But I know that sometimes there's got to be things that that don't sit well with you and help help people think through this. What are the best strategies for communicating effectively with good intentions, even with the risk of offending? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, there are a number of things that folks can do proactively um, to try to um, understand the, the language that people are most comfortable with. One, you can straight up ask, which do you prefer um, disability focused language or person first language? Um, and then let the person reply. I don't. I don't know of anyone who would be fen- offended by a question like that. Um, you can also observe how they refer to themselves. 
I think, you know, you, you pointed out, David, that you've seen me refer to myself uh, online as a disabled person. That's a pretty good indication of how I, you know, what I tend to be um, receptive to. And then I think, you know, if you do use a term that's, that's outdated and somebody hopefully gently um, lets you know that they prefer another term, you know, term, um, that's a great time to, to show some, some grace and say, you know, thank you for correcting me and just move forward from there. What can often end up leading to um, offense is when a person responds to that with trying to educate the disabled person on why the term that they used was actually acceptable, which absolutely happens. And it often happens with folks, um, in my experience, this is just my experience, with people who say um, differently abled. And I say, actually, um, disabled person works well for me. And they're like, well, you know, differently abled actually is the, and I'm like, stop right there. <laughs> you There's the don't actually. Explain it. Yeah. Um, yeah, the actually, when I tell you what I prefer, um, there's no actually after that. So, um, uh, but, you know, I, you know, I don't really, I don't react terribly negatively to differently abled either. Uh, I went through a differently abled terminology phase myself for a period of time. So, um, you know. Yeah, some of it is going with the times as as different terms gain currency and other ones lose it. Keeping up with that is is part of it and understanding the reasons behind it, of course. How it manifests itself very practically is something that you've been quite outspoken about, which is the the challenges that come with travel, especially travel by air, when you're a wheelchair user. And mm-hmm. You've described several scenarios that are, I don't know what adjectives describe that. I mean, they're, they're frustrating, they're, they're annoying, they're heartbreaking in some ways because of the simple things that could be done right that just aren't part of a standard operating procedure for a particular airport, gate crew, um, the design of airplanes themselves. Talk through, through this a little bit. You've educated a lot of people about challenges that they themselves are blind to for various reasons. Um, What is it that you find with all the progress we've made in the last, especially since the um, George H.W. Bush administration with the ADA, we've made a lot of advances in a lot of areas, but wow, we have a long way to go. Talk through some of those experiences and, and what you think we collectively could do better along those lines. Yeah, you know, the more I talk about these issues and the older I get, the more I realize that the vast majority of the general public has no idea the amount or depth of the barriers that disabled people in the United States face every single day in every element of our lives. Um, And so I've tried to speak about those when I feel one that I that I can maybe shed some light on some of those things um, when I can build awareness. Um, but that wasn't something that I always felt comfortable doing. A lot of my advocacy work, you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a full time disabled advocate. Um, it is something that I have sometimes taken on uh, because I wanted to and sometimes I took on because I felt like I had to because nobody else was doing it in my workplace environment or in other parts of my community. Um, There are times when I would absolutely love to have to not do or say any of these things because, you know, 
I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a former Intel professional. I work in the private sector. Uh, I have family. I have a life. Those are the things I would love to spend my time on. Um, but I, I often get pulled in this other direction, frankly, out of necessity. So, um, you know, some of the barriers that I think um, are helpful for, pe for people to know about are things like when I, as a wheelchair user, am going to a new place for the first time, the amount of planning and crisis planning, pre-planning that I have to do in order to simply travel to maybe a new a new building in my own city. Um, I have to, you know, Google map various routes. I have to look at, you know, are there accessible parking spaces? If the parking lot is full, where am I going to park? What is the route that I'm going to take if I end up having to walk a couple of blocks? Mm -hmm. um, are there curb cuts on those blocks? Can I get into the building? Is there a door opener? How am I going to open the door uh, if there is no door opener and nobody's around? Once I get inside, you know, all of those things on and on and on. And that's just for navigating my own city. Um, when you add travel to another location, you're looking at, you know, wheelchair accessible transportation, um, getting around an airport. And I don't think it's, it's widely known that wheelchair accessible transportation in the United States is almost non-existent. Yeah. Um, if you go to a city like New York, the city, um, the city passed legislation a number of years ago to have 50% of its, um, its uh, taxis be wheelchair accessible. That is to where you could be in a, your wheelchair and stay in your wheelchair in the cab. It has gotten to that point. I believe they've actually met it. Oh. And it is a vastly different experience when I'm in New York City. My life is so much easier if I'm traveling to New York City than if I go anywhere else in the United States. Um, most, the vast majority of even mid-sized cities in the United States do not have wheelchair accessible taxi options at all. And so um, getting around to go and do something like speak at an event that I'm being paid to speak at can often very quickly become a nightmare uh, or impossible. Um, and then you add air travel to that as well. So I do have horror story after horror story of things like my very expensive wheelchair that, you know, costs the, more than some people's cars gets dropped off the side of the plane, broken into multiple pieces, and then they bring me the multiple pieces at the gate and say, good luck to you. Uh, nice. I've had to threaten to sue airlines in order to have them replace my chair. I've had pieces melted off of my wheelchair because they put my wheelchair up against something very destructive. Um, in the, the belly of the airplane, I've had my wheelchair not put on the plane, I've had them lose my wheelchair. Um, and again, you have to go back to the idea of, you know, impact. So my, my chair is my mobility, it's my independence, it's ability to work. It's my, you know, you tell an employer, you can't come to work for maybe a month, because the airline needs to replace the wheelchair, they broke. Guess what, an employer doesn't like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so you know, I think it's a lot of my work is just in in trying to expose the the just the extent of inequity that disabled people in the United States face in every aspects of their lives. And how did you find the experience of navigating around government buildings uh, when you were working at CIA and you know both within the the buildings in the intelligence community, but also a lot of time as an analyst and manager is communicating with policymakers and going to places from the White House to the State Department to the Pentagon and beyond. And there's a, um, 
there's probably this impression out there that because it's the government and because of the decades old uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, that everything is probably at you know the top level and everything is great. I'm guessing your experience does not bear that out, that there was some variance there and that you did not always find accommodations easy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have done a fair amount of speaking on this issue as somebody who feels very strongly about the fact that um, if we want to best defend our country and protect our national security, we need to be able to hire the best and the brightest uh, and retain the best and the brightest. And those are often people with disabilities. Um, and so you can't, uh, you can't properly protect the United States if you're not able to actually keep um, the top experts in the country because they have a disability. Um, and so, um, you know, it was a very uh, mixed experience for me. I, um, and I've written about this publicly, so it's all good to talk about. But, um, you know, I joined the agency as a fresh out of, actually fresh still in grad school, um, young person and uh, was very excited, had always wanted to work at the agency, was very much a, you know, James Bond fan growing up and was very excited about it. I was a military analyst um, for most of my career, which is an extremely exciting, fast paced uh, career field to be in. I worked uh, a number of international crises. Let me um, ask you, Cindy, let me ask you to drill down a bit there. You just mentioned military analyst. Can you offer a little bit more about what that job entails and what the expertise of a military analyst does for policymakers? Yeah. So um, throughout my career, I worked on a number of geographic regions, mostly Europe, parts of the Middle East, and parts of North Africa. And I worked the range of security issues related to those areas. So everything from um, understanding how countries are modernizing their militaries to deploying their militaries, um, analyzing their capabilities, analyzing um, their operations uh, in, in various wars, um, analyzing their capabilities and plans for defending against terrorism and that sort of thing. So intelligence analysts comb through vast amounts of intelligence and information on a daily basis and monitor uh, events as they're unfolding to provide analysis uh, to policymakers on those events. So a military analyst focuses especially on security issues. And to be clear, you're not explicitly comparing that to U.S. systems. You're not doing a an analysis of U.S. military capabilities and how they would work in a conflict against another country's military capabilities. You're really looking at the foreign actors. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you were you were talking through your career a bit. It's um, you know, it's a very exciting exciting field, and I got to do a lot of that tra traveling between um, facilities. I was you know um, a briefer for the um, National Security Council for a while during a moment of, of particular crisis, uh, foreign crisis, um, and uh, very, very exciting times. Um, I was also, you know, a constant briefer um, of, you know, four-star generals. I would go into rooms of, you know, uh, primarily military men. I was often the only woman in the room. I was often the only um, woman on my team. Um, and I was uh, almost always, I would feel comfortable saying about 99% of the time, I was also the only person with a physical um, disability in most rooms. Um, and so when I joined uh, the agency, 
I started to look for my community there, looking for people who could help me navigate um, this giant organization as a disabled person and um, quickly learned from those individuals that there was a lot of work to be done. I, um, I tell one story in, a, in an article I wrote for, for the Daily Beast about, you know, my first day on the job, I got to my new office and there was this giant vault door, which is, you know, several hundreds of pounds. And, you know, uh, I'm not great at physics, but just try to imagine trying to open a, you know, a very, very heavy door from a seated position um, in a wheelchair. Uh, it's incredibly difficult. And so, um, you know, even from day one, I had all of these even physical barriers to, um, to accessing my job. And um, that was a pretty consistent message that I heard from, from disabled, my fellow disabled employees. And they had the range of disabilities, everything from, you know, other kinds of mobility uh, disabilities to PTSD, visual um, impairments, deaf and hard of hearing colleagues and, and, and folks mm-hmm. like that. And everyone's experiences were, you know, were very different, but were consistently ones of we don't have what we need to be able to do our jobs on the same equal basis as our colleagues. And whether that was a facilities issue or, you know, an issue with accessing technology and things like that, um, that was sort of the the consistent idea. And so um, I decided to, you know, take pretty early on in my career a leadership role um, in working my day job, which again, you know, was the military stuff, <laughs> but also um, voluntarily working on uh, diversity inclusion. And I was part of a number of different agency efforts, um, again, which I've talked publicly about, um, everything from John Brennan's diversity and inclusion study that that they undertook to um, being one of the creators of um, some of our, our um, first ever work on disability inclusion specifically. Um, and so um, things, things did improve over time. Um, and, uh, but there were, there were barriers, massive barriers along the way. And a lot of it came down to actually just having to convince, um, people in decision-making positions that, um, they should be working to, uh, include, attract and retain employees with disabilities. Um, because they were, you know, if we're, again, if we're looking for the best and the brightest, we should be working as hard as we possibly can to make, uh, our agency, um, our agencies as inclusive as possible. Absolutely. So your experience at the agency was, uh, obviously as a military analyst, as an intelligence briefer, where you would not just cover your own expertise, but you would be representing the analysis of many other people to important policy customers on the national security council staff. Um, you were also a manager of analysts. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. How did your your mindset change when you took the management job? Uh, your role changes, right? You're no longer the widget maker. You're no longer the the expert producing material. Your your job is to get resources to those people, to empower the people who are able to to create those assessments. Talk through that a little bit and how you thought of the experience. Yeah, it, it was a very um, a very interesting role change for me. Um, I loved being an analyst. Um, I was the the person who wanted to be thrown right into the center of the fire. Um, I loved the PDB process. I was probably the only person who loved the PDB process, the president's daily brief. Uh-huh. Um, I loved writing. I loved analysis, just all of it. Um, and going into management, part of it was motivated by the thought that maybe I could have 
bigger organizational impact um, at a management level than I was having as an as an analyst. Um, and so that's part of the mindset that that took me into that role. Um, I was really, really lucky to work with some phenomenal analysts. Um, I was a manager of a multidisciplinary team, so they worked the range of analytic issues, um, you know, political issues, military, all of that. And um, and like you said, David, my my role shifted. It was about empowering my analysts, uh, being the person who takes away their stumbling blocks so that they could do the work that they needed to do, letting my analysts be the substantive experts that they were and doing whatever it took to facilitate that. Um, it was also about building customer relationships and making sure that our intelligence products were um, crafted in a way that best answered policymaker questions that were you know, ahead of the curve and anticipating what those questions were, uh, were going to be and in helping policymakers think creatively about um, some of our most complex national security challenges. It sounds like you loved the analyst job and you loved the manager job. Mm -hmm. So the obvious follow-up is, why did you leave? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I was there for 10 years um, and a number of of things sort of led me to deciding to leave. Um, Part of it was, you know, like I said earlier in the conversation, I've always been one of those people that when, you know, uh, when asked, um, what do you want to do with your life? I was like, everything. Like, I knew that I wanted to go into the agency, but I also knew I wanted to, I wanted to be a travel writer at some stage in my life. I wanted to um, possibly teach. I wanted to do creative writing and hopefully publish a book. Um, I actually was able to do a lot of those things in the last couple of years. Um, I did a number of travel pieces um, after I left the agency I wrote my book uh, that was first published after I left the agency. Um, I actually uh, taught grad school classes um, while I was working at the agency at one point. So I've checked off a number of those boxes, but I knew that I there were there were things that I wanted to do on the outside of the agency. And part of that was um, joining the private sector and working some of these issues um, from a private sector perspective. Um, you know, I don't... I, I don't shy away from the fact that part of my motivation as well was just being dismayed about the lack of progress um, on disability inclusion efforts um, within uh, the Intel community. It, you know, I think it's, it might be easy to um, underestimate the extent to which it wears on you to day after day, year after year have to justify your existence as a person, what you're doing, uh, why you're advocating for these resources, to have to defend your community, to have to convince your, uh, you know, decision makers that they should be accommodating experts in their fields uh, as a way of protecting national security. Um, It wears on you over time. Um, And um, I, I was sort of burned out on that, on that front by the time I left. That's understandable. Um, and it's a shame that you're left with that as well as some of the, the positive memories that you've talked about. But I can tell you on the flip side, when I mentioned to a friend of mine who is still on the inside and she is a relatively senior manager now inside the the agency, and I mentioned I'd be chatting with you for the, the Chatter podcast, she got a smile and she said, oh, 
I remember Cindy really well. I said, oh, you, you worked with her. You're like, no, 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 I didn't work with her. Um, I had one training class with her, uh, one analytic training class or managerial class. I can't remember which. Um, and she said, you know, she was just really smart and, and she impressed a couple of us, you know, a couple of us who I was close to someone else in the class. And we were chatting after the class that, you know, she was really impressive. So I think perhaps you you may miss being there some days and you may not miss being there because of that frustration other days, but some people do miss you being there and you might not even know that. Now you do. Well, that's lovely. Thanks for sharing that, David. I, you know, people ask me, especially um, disabled people ask me, you know, do I regret working there? Um, Would I discourage uh, other disabled people from working there? And the answer is absolutely not. Mm that was the highlight of my professional life. I loved being an analyst. I loved that job. I was, I was successful at it. Um, I would not trade those experiences for anything. And I think conditions have improved for disabled employees. And I'm happy to, to think that some of that, you know, was the result of some of the work I was able to do when I was there. Um, you know, going into it, I think you do have to sort of have eyes open, knowing that you're going to have to do a bit of pushing yourself as well. Right. There's a different sort of satisfaction that comes from working on what, you know, people in the business will call the outside. And Mm -hmm. for you, you jumped right into doing a lot of writing. And one of your outlets early on was, was an outlet that frankly, a lot of us were caught off guard as being at the vanguard of clear, concise descriptions of the challenges to democracy and the rule of law in the last administration and trying to give a good description of what was really happening with Russian interference in the election. And and that outlet was Teen Vogue. And it was shocking that here's something that most people would have discounted as a, I don't want to say a not a serious publication, but not a publication dealing with those kinds of topics for that audience. And yet some of the authors, yourself included, who contributed to Teen Vogue were doing some really exceptional writing, uh, very clear and crisp on these topics. What kind of feedback did you get both from former colleagues and from people reading the things that you had created for public consumption on these topics? (laughs) Yeah, um, writing for Teen Vogue has been um, has been fun. Uh, And I um i'm actually working on a piece for them from them for them now actually um i you know it sort of goes back to to what we were talking about earlier about my choice of of doing a lot of writing for the young adult audience in book form it's the same thing in in you know current event coverage i think um i continue to believe increasingly believe i think that one of the most important things that people with professional expertise in particular areas when it comes to national security intel, disinformation, societal harms, uh, online harms, radicalization, terrorism, all of those topics, one of the most important things we can be doing is trying to reach the younger audience and educating the younger audiences um, on these issues to help them understand their complexities from an early age and also help them think through what does this mean for them in their lives? How can they look at these issues? How can they maybe take action on some of these issues? Um, I I just, I, I just very passionately feel like we can help arm them. So perhaps the younger generation gets some of these issues a little bit better than we did. 
um, some of the feedback I've gotten has been interesting. You know, kudos to Teen Vogue for um, for asking somebody of a national security and intel background to mm-hmm. write for them to begin with. Mm-hmm. I think um, they have have done a great job of trying to be inclusive. Yeah, that's not um, an the obvious kinds of writers. Choice. That's yeah, and yeah, that's, that's something that that probably took some courage on their part to speak to others in the organization and say, no, we, we really should be doing this. Don't underestimate our readers. Yeah, exactly. I, it, it was, I think from my understanding of it, it was a deliberate intention to say, you know, our young readers need to know about these things. Let's not try to hide important segments of, of discussion of current events from them. Let's actually try to inform them. Um, and so, yeah, the feedback I got was, was interesting. I remember the very first piece I did, I think it was Robbie Gramer from Foreign Policy, I think, who was like, and now Teen Vogue has a former Intel person writing for them. Who knew? It was something, it was actually something funnier than that. But, um, but, uh, but I thought it was funny. And that was the reaction from a lot of people of just the surprise that they would um, ask somebody of my background to write for them. Um, there was a lot of, of positivity as well of just being like, you know, impressed that um, the outlet is trying to cover national security. And then, um, you know, as has been a consistent uh, theme as well, since uh, starting to, to talk publicly and coming out as uh, former Intel publicly, um, it sort of fanned the flames of a couple of conspiracies, uh, conspiracy theories um, about, you know, the deep state trying to, you know, infiltrate and things like that. I'm often listed as, uh, you know, on various conspiracy theory websites as a member of the deep state and that sort of thing. Yeah. Our names are probably next to each other. (laughs) Yeah. We get lumped in. The other outlet you've done a lot of writing for is one that I think is dramatically underappreciated when people think about platforms for reaching people. And that's USA Today. People often think about the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. But the latest data I saw that USA Today was the number one most circulated newspaper in the US. And it wasn't close. It's something like 10% more than the closest uh, other publication, the Wall Street Journal. And it was about double the circulation of the number three, which is the New York Times. Uh, It reaches people in part because Mm -hmm. I think still the majority of hotels you go to, that is the newspaper that's put outside your door if you elect to get one. And it's present in the lobby absolutely everywhere, as well as a lot of other public places, doctor's offices, things like that. A lot of them subscribe. So you've probably published there more than anywhere else. Why do you feel that USA Today, which does consciously write at a level that is accessible to almost everyone instead of uh, for a particular market. Why do you feel that it's important to get some of the key themes you write about published through that outlet? Yeah, I mean, it's a similar mindset that I have um, about my writing in general. Of um, If there's an opportunity to break down complex issues into um, writing that is accessible and digestible by a broader audience, that's the publication I'm going to go with. That's the format I'm going to go with. Um, national security is not for the elite only to understand. It's actually something that Americans need to um, understand across the board about our role in the world, um, about everything from from how we, how the government sees national security to what we are doing uh, around the world to defend national security. Um, and the good and the bad of that, right? 
So not from a, a place of, of promotion, but as a place of, of explaining um, the reality. And so, um, you know, it's for the reasons that you said, it's it's the number one uh, most read publication, news publication. Um, it reaches the most audiences and it breaks outside of the, the sort of coastal bubble as well. Um, and I felt like that's an important place to be. So I'm on the board of um, contributors there. Mm-hmm. And um, just, I, I always appreciate the fact that um, the the folks that I've worked with from USA Today are are most interested about um, informing readers about complex issues. Right. Both there and in the second half of your book, True or False, you spend a lot of time talking about what to do about fake news, about misinformation, disinformation, all of the issues in this larger space. Uh, Let's begin with one, which is simply knowing the difference between fact and opinion. And this is depressing because you cite a Pew Research study report from, I believe, 2018, where I think 5,000 and some adults across America were asked to identify which of 10 statements were fact and which of 10 statements were opinion. And barely a quarter of respondents could properly classify all the facts as facts. When you're beginning with that, when when that's your baseline, that it's not advanced analytics, it's not the ability to do reverse image searches or to find the ownership of a particular press outlet, when it's simply the inability to distinguish between a fact and an opinion, does that make you depressed about our ability (laughs) to fully climb out of this fake news hole that we're in? Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, um, I write about these issues. I think I'm of the more optimistic on them than probably a lot in the research space. But that is simply because I need the fuel to keep going and working on these issues. Right. right. Um, if I let facts like that depress me, I would probably quit this space. Um, and I'm, I'm not ready to do that. So um, to me, it, it, it isn't depressing. I switch into what can I do to help. Uh, mode. What can I say about this? What can I, um, what, what tips can I publish in some, in some sort of way? What, what things need to be said about this that can help improve this reality? Um, And that was, you know, sort of the whole foundation of the book is that I felt like I, I see this thing happening. I see that people are conflating fact and opinion. I see that people are letting their biases rule as they look at information. I can see that people are discouraged by revelations about Russian interference. What can I say to get people out of this, right? So that's where the book came from. Um, A lot of the tips that I talk about in that one included um, actually start with sort of self-discovery, understanding uh, and doing sort of self-analysis about what are the lenses that you put on when you start looking at information, how is that coloring what you end up reading, what you end up trusting, and what you end up thinking is true, false, or opinion? Um, and through that process, my hope is, of course, that that people will be able to think more critically about the information they're consuming. The fact versus opinion is uh, that discussion is about um, helping people understand the extent to which 
not even through any fault of our own necessarily, but our natural inclination is to be driven by emotion, right? Our natural inclination is to feel like the things that we feel really strongly about, those are the true things and those are the factual things, as opposed to um, things that we disagree with and have that sort of negative emotional reaction to. Yeah, I would say a lot of your advice, uh, both in the book and in many of your articles, falls under two categories. And one of them is self-awareness, you know, checking yourself, preferably before you wreck yourself, and finding a way to eliminate or at least reduce your own biases, um, acknowledge them, and, and then move forward. So that's that's one. The other one, which can overlap with that, but a whole lot of your checklists for everything from identifying fake images to avoiding passing on misinformation through social media, a lot of it has to do with just slowing down, right? Mm -hmm. Not trying to be the first person to pass on supposed breaking news or passing on that flashy image and making the, the snarky comment on it. I'm as guilty as anyone of falling prey to that tendency but slowing down just enough to ask some key questions. And they vary depending on whether it's text or image. They vary depending on whether it's uh, something political or scientific, but they're generally the same, which is try to find out who is pushing this. Did they link to an original source or not? Is it dramatically different than what your experience tells you should be true? Doesn't mean it's wrong. There are anomalies in the world, but if so, you know, take the time to investigate it and see whether the local reporters where it claims this activity is happening are picking up on it, or is it just some random person who is not linked to the area in which they're describing? A whole lot of these things involve time. And yet you ask person after person, what's their resource that they have the least of? Many of them will answer time. How do you square that circle? How do you how do you tell people you've got to slow down, not contribute to this fake news environment in large part by slowing down? And they tell you, sorry, that's the one thing I really can't do. It's a good question. I, you know, to be honest, it was a, it was a conversation with my editor throughout this entire book uh, when we were talking about, all right, what's the tone we want to strike with this book? How do we actually um, how do I not write a book that is so depressing that people can't even make it halfway through because they're so <laughs> they're so depressed by it they set it down? How do we keep it, um, uh, you know, feeling like something that is achievable? And a lot of that came to, down to trying to um, create a list of tips and tricks that people could employ that might add a little bit of extra time onto their you know, information consumption habits, but we're not going to be so overwhelming that they just decided, you know, I'm going to close all my social media accounts. This is not worth it. Or, you know, I'm not going to engage with the news. I can't stand it. I don't want to have to do these things. And so it was about, you know, coming up with um, actionable lists that people could somewhat easily work through, right? So instead of seeing a, a post and reading the headline and sharing it based off of that headline, the guide says, click on the article, check things like the date, when was it published, check whether it has an author. Those are all things that add maybe five seconds onto your reading time or your social media time. 
And then from there, there are other things that you can do too. You can look to see if hyperlinks are broken or if they're real. You can, you know, use your search engine of choice to see if the publication has been around for a long time. You can check with another news outlet that you do know and see if they're reporting it too, like all of those things. But um, most of the, the guides that I include start with things that are very quick to do as a way of not trying to overburden people. Um, I say it uh, in the book, I think somewhere that, you know, we're not trying to turn you into, you know, this is your full-time job. This is now your profession. We're just trying to give you actionable things you can do as you're looking at social media anyways. Absolutely. It, it one of the more useful tips that's in there, it comes down to headlines versus text that you and I know that the vast majority of articles, the author doesn't write the headline. Um, those are those are written sometimes with author input, quite quite often without author input, <laughs> and the titles don't necessarily reflect well the content within. You and I are hypersensitive to this because we took great pains. I'm quite confident you you share my experience on this. We took great pains when writing intelligence products <laughs> to ensure that there was no daylight between the title and the main analytic message within the core of the text, because some policymakers were busy enough that they would read the title. And if it had an analytic message, they might take that on board and flip to the next piece they were reading and not read the detail. So you had to have the message right. And the few times uh, in my experience where there was daylight between the two, I can think of one prominent case where the National Security Advisor of the United States read a headline in the President's Daily Brief on an article read the first paragraph of the text and said, this headline doesn't match the the piece. And she was right. Mm. So I think we are trained to be very focused on that. And headline writers have a tough job. And I think they do get it right most of the time. But sometimes they don't. And that's a shame. But it's a particular problem when somebody reads a headline and forwards a piece to their 1 million followers without realizing that that's not what the story actually says. So we may want to add to the five or 10 seconds of research you just mentioned, maybe take 30 seconds or a minute to actually read the article that you're forwarding to all of your real and virtual friends. That might be a good idea, right? (laughs) Yep. And that's in there as well. Like, please do read. (laughs) Please do read. Um, You know, look, I I think it's important to, to note um and i and i do in the book we're not asking for perfection and i think anyone in any expert space who says that they get this right 100% of the time is just, just probably isn't aware of a time in which they messed up they shared something that didn't end up being you know quite true i think it's important to acknowledge that um even as a disinformation investigator myself um also just human right um and so uh, I think if we if we're looking to people to um, have that 100% of the time they are correct, people will just disengage and will just check out. Um, and so I want to make sure that that's very clear. But absolutely, um, my perspective is if you don't have the time to do at least a pretty you know good read of something before you share it, you probably don't need to share it. It can wait. Mm-hmm. You make a point in the uh, new paperback 
version of True or False? Because the book was published, what, three years ago now? 2020. Um, but you've published it with a new afterword in the paperback version. And per your point earlier, you actually end on a somewhat optimistic note, which is odd given that you talk about what's happened in the last three years. You talk about the global pandemic and all of the literally deadly misinformation that came with that. You talk about the insurrection on January 6th and the obvious cases of fake news that that contributed to that. Um, but yet you end on a positive note. You say that something that happened with the buildup to the Russian invasion of Ukraine leaves you actually feeling good about some of these tips and tricks that you recommend. Um, talk through that. What are you a little bit positive about when it comes to what happened before the invasion and even in the days and weeks after it? You know, I um, I try to make every conversation and to the extent possible, every piece that I write end on some sort of optimistic, hopeful note, because I think that's really critically important to keeping people engaged. It sometimes tests my creativity <laughs> quite a lot, actually. Yeah, some days are harder than others. Um, yeah, and some days, you know, mustering some optimism is also is almost impossible. Um, I use the example of Russia invading Ukraine to talk about the ways, the things that the Ukrainian government did as the invasion was um, very obviously being planned, as well as things that the U.S. government did, that is exposing Russian plans, um, and being very public about that exposure as a way to pre-bunk um, what ended up being false Russian narratives about the invasion. So before the invasion, literally as the military was building up on the border, Russia was saying, we're not doing anything. There's nothing to see here. And the Ukrainian government and the United States were very vocal about this is happening. This is happening. And uh, you would you would know better than I do, David, uh, for sure. That, um, But it seemed like this was quite unprecedented, the extent to which the U.S. government declassified um, information about Russian activities prior to the invasion and at the start of the invasion. Um, and <clears throat> when the invasion occurred and Russia switched to, this is just a, a special operation. This is a peacekeeping mission. And those narratives... Again, the U.S. government and the Ukrainian governments were very proactive in providing public information about the fact that that was completely not true. Um, as Russia has continued to pump out um, conspiracy theory and lies day after day after day about their activities, the extent of human rights abuses that they are um, uh, conducting in Ukraine, um, the damage that they are causing um, and why they are there and what they're doing. As those lies have continued to come out, the Ukrainian government has continued to knock them down one by one by one. Right. And, and so it gives me a little bit of hope because I think that in some communities that is working. Um, I think it's important to note, of course, though, that Russian disinformation isn't just focused on convincing the US audience and the Ukrainian audience. It's also globally focused, and I think they've had more success in convincing other countries um, of their lies than they have of um, uh, particularly Europe and the United States and uh, NATO members and countries like that. So, um, but I think, but I do think it's it's reason to be cautiously hopeful. That is a fair point. Well, this is the time in the podcast when we reach into our vaunted chatterbox and pull out a random pre-printed question to ask you. 
Cindy, if you could convince the President of the United States to take one discrete action today related to national security, what would it be? So um, there are a number of different things that obviously came to mind, and I've had to choose uh, just one. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that I'm a huge NATO file. I've spent a large amount of my career working on uh, NATO, something mm-hmm. I studied all the way starting in, in undergrad. Um, I would say that um, the president should uh, be working feverishly to um, to, bol- to bolster NATO um, mm-hmm. and our uh, alliance members there to fast track the membership um, of uh of countries like Sweden that are ready to go uh, when just a few years ago, we might've thought that impossible. I think um, Russian, the Russian invasion of Georgia uh, showed us in 2008 that um, NATO had a very important mission. Um, I think it with uh, activities in Afghanistan and elsewhere, it had sort of gotten uh, away from that core mission mm-hmm. um, to a degree. And uh, European capitals have been decimating defense budgets for quite some time. It's something that's been a huge U.S. foreign policy priority to get those defense budgets um, back up to where they should be to be able to maintain and develop their militaries. I think um, the invasion of Ukraine has shown just how critical NATO's core mission is and how important those alliances with those countries are. I think they've been decimated over the years by also political turmoil within the United States. And our alliance members need to know that they can count on the United States as a consistent partner, not a partner based off of whoever's in office. Right on. Cindy, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Thanks so much, David. That was Chatter a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at ThatWasChatter. Chatter.